The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Just want to say a personal word of thanks to the drummer. Just, uh, <laughs> uh, just joking, just joking. Why don't you uh, take your Bibles and uh, open up to the book of Daniel, the book of Daniel. It's almost impossible uh, to think about the Christmas season without thinking about the hymns and the carols that provide the soundtrack for it. It's a personal joy for me every year to hear the proclamation that Jesus is king in the most unexpected places. Every year, the word, the world gets a hold of our playlist and doesn't even realize it. And one theme that's impossible to get away from in the music and in what we just sung and what we sang last night, one theme that's impossible to get away from is that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And there's so many of our Christmas carols, Christmas hymns that proclaim that Jesus is king. Hark the herald angels sing. One of the most theologically rich Christmas hymns and the very first line says, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. In the hymn, Angels We Have Heard on High, there's the line, Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn king. Then in O Holy Night, it says, He knows our need to our weakness is no stranger. Behold your king before him lowly bend. Then in the hymn, What Child Is This? makes it clear that all other kings are beneath him. Listen to this. So bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come peasant king to own him. You know, all the other kings are peasants compared to this great king. Come peasant king to own him. The king of kings, salvation brings, let loving hearts enthrone him. This, this is Christ the king, whom shepherds guard and angels sing, haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. But in the middle of all these hymns that hail the newborn king, the babe, the son of Mary, the one who was born a child and yet a king, there's a hymn that proclaims that the king who came is the same king who's coming back. And he's coming back to reign as king. And it was the hymn that was originally titled The Messiah's Coming Kingdom, where it makes this clear. This Christmas hymn is one of the most popular of our hymns, and it's based on the words of Psalm 98. It's published in the book, The Psalms of David, imitated in 1719. Listen to Psalm 98 and see if you can figure out what this Christmas hymn is that was inspired by Psalm 98 and was previously titled The Messiah's Coming Kingdom. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of all the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre, then the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that it fills it. 
the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. It's a a wonderful psalm of a celebration to make a joyful noise to all the earth, to break forth in joyous song, to make a joyful noise before the king. Let the hills sing for joy. And it was Isaac Watts who, as he thought about these words, he thought not only about the wonderful celebration of the Lord as king, but the the hope-filled expectation of the Messiah's coming kingdom. And he connected this psalm to the joy that would fill the world when the Messiah comes in his kingdom. And the Lord will make known his salvation, reveal his righteousness. The ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. And we know this hymn today is joy to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rock hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. And then in verse 4, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. And this is the kind of expectation that we should have as believers as we think about the Messiah's coming kingdom. And, and yes, there's, there's joy over the long-expected Jesus who brought us salvation. But the lingering prayer for us as believers is, Now thy gracious kingdom bring. Bring the kingdom. As Matthew 6.10 says, Your kingdom come. We understand that Jesus was born to rule. In John chapter 18 and verse 37, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. I've been born to be a king. And yes, the the kingdom right now is uh, ruled in the hearts of men, but there's coming a time when I will bring that kingdom. He says, if uh, my kingdom was of this world, that my servants would fight for it. But there's coming a time when he will fight for it. With the breath of his mouth, he will slay his enemies. There's coming a time when that will be true. And Jesus is ruling right now in the hearts of those who confess him as king. His kingdom is not of this world in that sense. But one day that internal kingdom will be made external. And he will make his salvation known, reveal his righteousness in the sight of all the nations. All the earth will see the salvation of our God. And as we say, come thou long expected Jesus, now thy gracious kingdom bring. And today I'm living in the expositor's dream because instead of finding a new text to preach in preparation for Christmas, I can just go right back to Daniel chapter 7 where we already were because it picks up on this theme as Jesus as king. Just to remind you of where we were in Daniel, the book of of Daniel is a a book that reminds us that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind, bestows it on whomever he wishes. That's a key thought that shows up multiple times throughout the book of, of Daniel, over 90 times in the book of Daniel. There's some explicit mention of God taking someone down or raising somebody up. The invisible hand of God is over all the powers, sovereign over all dominions. And the question that's behind the text of Daniel chapter 7 is how long will the Lord tolerate evil, arrogant world rulers who utter great boasts and even blasphemies against the Most High God? How how long will the Lord tolerate this? Daniel 7 is the first of four visions given directly to Daniel to help us answer that question because that's the question that would have certainly been on the mind of Daniel. As we pointed out last time, 
Daniel receives this vision in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. That's the historical marker. Belshazzar was the king who arose. He did not know Daniel. During the previous reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was promoted. He was made a ruler over all the province of Babylon. But now Daniel's services are no longer needed. He was sidelined. He's on the outside. He's looking in. He's wondering what does the future hold as this evil and blasphemous ruler takes the throne. And if you remember, Belshazzar was the king who was bold enough to take the vessels of God that his uh, grandfather confiscated from the temple of Jerusalem. But he was so bold to take the vessels of God and use them in a drunken party to celebrate with his wives, his concubines, and his nobles and praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Belshazzar was a blasphemous, arrogant, and evil, idolatrous pagan king. And according to Daniel's vision, Belshazzar was just one of many to come. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, Daniel sees these three hideous monsters who go from bad to worse. These four beasts represents the, the four empires or kingdoms of the world to come. And then there's this Last beast, and out of his head arise these ten horns, and another horn after that. I mean, it's a a terrifying picture. And then the angel who interprets Daniel's dream in verse 24 says, This is a picture of the kings of the earth. And as for these ten horns out of this last kingdom, ten kings will arise, and then another will arise after them. And according to this vision, there's going to be this final king, this, this horn that uproots three of the previous horns, who's pictured as a a horn possessing eyes, the mouth uttering great boasts, and he's going to dominate. Verse 25 of Daniel chapter 7, it says, He will speak out against the Most High, wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and law. They will be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. This is the same ruler that Revelation 13 speaks about. It says he's given a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. He's the the one who's called the man of lawlessness. And 1 John 2 and verse 18 says that this one is the Antichrist, who you heard was coming, and he is coming. And this is the world ruler that Daniel sees unleashed on the world. But thankfully, that's not where the vision ends for for Daniel. He just has to keep looking. Let's look at uh, Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 9. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you today, and uh, Father, we are grateful for your word. And uh, Father, we uh, look forward to the coming of the Son of Man. 
My Father, we pray that we would understand more about who he is even today. The Christ who is incarnate. My Father, we are grateful for this Son of Man. And Father, I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The joy that the Christmas hymns speak about is right here in Daniel chapter 7. There's coming a day that the earth will receive her king. And Jesus was born for this, born to be a king. We'll take a look at our text in in three sections. The the scene in heaven in verses 9 to 12, the son of man before the throne in verses 13 to 14, and then the saints of the kingdom on earth in verses 15 down to 18. But let's take a look at the the scene in in heaven. Take a look at the the setting. Look again at verse 9. He says, I I kept looking until thrones were set up. And there's this dramatic shift that takes place between verse 9 and what came before it in verses 7 and 8. If you look back to verses 7 and 8, it's it's just this hideous picture. Look at verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying, extremely strong. It had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder of its with its feet. And it was different from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns while I was contemplating the, the horns. Behold, another horn, a little one, came up at, among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Then all of a sudden, like without warning, the whole scene shifts. The entire scenery changes. And we're in a different world. And there's no panic. There's no sirens going off. There's no alarm. Daniel 7 verse 9 says, I kept looking until thrones were set up. You just see the order. Thrones are set up. The Ancient of Days took his seat. I call this the scene in heaven because that's the setting. Later on in uh, verse 13, it says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man came up to the Ancient of Days. So that's the scene. It's, it's a heavenly scene. The Son of Man in the clouds of heaven coming up to the Ancient of Days. And this is the picture of the one who rules from heaven. In chapter 4 and verse 26, Daniel says, It is heaven that rules. Second Chronicles. In chapter 20, it says, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. In Psalm 103 and verse 19, it says, The Lord has established its throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. But this is more than just a a rule from heaven. This is judgment from heaven. Because the thrones are set up for a court. Chapter 7, verse 10 says, the court sat. 7, verse 26 says, the court will sit for judgment. These are judgment thrones. God is always ruling, but this is a specific time for judgment. And the thrones are set up for judgment. And even though we're told that there are multiple thrones, there's only one being who is described here who took a seat, and it's the Ancient of Days. Daniel doesn't tell us how many thrones were set up. I believe the Apostle John fills us in on those details in Revelation chapter 4, 5, 11, and chapter 19. Daniel doesn't tell us who occupied the other thrones. I believe the Apostle Paul fills us in on those details in 1 Corinthians 6 and also Jesus in Matthew 19, 28. But in this vision, Daniel's attention, attention is fixed on the Ancient of Days. He only describes one. Many thrones, but I'm only looking at one. I'm fixed on one. And it's the sovereign one. 
The Ancient of Days is the sovereign figure in this vision. And it's clear from this description that we're talking about God. He's the one behind the scenes who's, who gives dominion and takes it away. That's God who orchestrates all of that. And there's a unique title that's only given to God in Daniel chapter 7. And it's the title, Ancient of Days. What is it that, that Daniel wants us to take away from this title? And why does it just show up here? What's the, what's the significance of this? The Ancient of Days. When we're speaking about God, we're talking about one who's eternal. The Ancient of Days is just a, a word or a term that references olden age. I mean, that's, that's what it means. You know, olden age. But when we're speaking about God, we're speaking about somebody who is eternal, right? Transcends all limitations of time. Without beginning, without end. He exists outside of time. He's distinct from time. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, it just says, in the beginning, God. <laughs> like, like in the beginning already was God. He was before there was a beginning. Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I mean, how, how do you put your arms around that? Everlasting to everlasting. There's, there's no way to wrap your arms around the eternity of God. And why does this title show up here? What's the significance of placing this title in Daniel chapter 7? To say, I, I want you to, to be mindful of who is the ancient of days. Why put this here in Daniel 7? What's the significance? How about this? When the world seems like it's running out of control, it's helpful to remember that there was somebody there before it all. When Job thought the world was out of control, what did God ask Job? Remember that? Where were you? Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job, where, where were you? What, what, what does that do for Job? It, it brings them back into reality. Okay, God, like, you're God, I'm not. <laughs> You've got this figured out. I'm just, I'm the new kid on the block. Like, I'm, I'm okay, right? I put my hand over my mouth. I'm repenting. Like, God, there's no, I don't, really don't have any more questions, God. It, it, it puts things back into to, to check. I've been around for a long time, Job. I know what I'm doing. And here we're reminded that God has it all figured out. Like I said, there's no panic in heaven. Seats are just being set up. The Ancient of Days is taking a seat. And Daniel goes on to describe the Ancient of Days by saying, His vesture was like white snow, the hair of his head like pure wool, clothing like uh, white snow, and hair like wool is a picture of purity, freedom from sin, the contamination of sin in the Scriptures. Both snow and wool are used in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18 to speak of purity. In uh, Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Both snow and wool used for purity from sin. And the same kind of garment that the Lord wears is what the saints in heaven wear, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. White garments, purified. What significance does this have in this context? The judgment that comes from this throne is going to be a righteous judgment. It's going to be a righteous judgment. Psalm 97 verse 2 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Everything that the ancient of days is going to say is going to be absolutely perfect. This is righteous judgment that he's giving. 
Genesis 18.25, Abraham asked the question, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the, the answer is absolutely, of course he does what's right. He's the perfect judge. And this is the judge who takes his seat. What about this seat? Look again at verse 10. Actually, I'll start in verse, verse 9. It says, The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. This is the seat of the perfect judge. And as he sits on his throne, his throne is described as a blazing fire. And the throne is on fire. And it's on wheels, and those wheels are on fire. And there's a river flowing, and that river that's flowing from him is a river of fire. And it's inescapable that the fire here represents judgment in this vision. Why? Because the beast is thrown into the fire. It's a judgment on the beast. Flowing from this throne is the fire of judgment, and that's the consistent picture that we have in the scriptures of the judgment of God. In Psalm 50 and verse 3, it says, May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him, and it is very tempestuous around him. Deuteronomy 4.24, For the Lord your God is a consuming what? Fire. He's a consuming fire. And the final judgment in Scripture is described as a lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Where where do you think that that lake of fire comes from? It comes from the, the river of fire from the throne of God. It's the river of fire that leads to the lake of fire. It's an active, continuous judgment from God. And even the throne is active. The throne is on wheels. I mean, you, you can't escape this judgment of God. Hebrews 10 and verse 31 says, It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's an active, continuous judgment from His throne, and His throne is righteous. How about those surrounding the throne? There's servants around the throne. Verse 10 says thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. Surrounding the throne is this vast army of angelic beings. Thousands upon thousands. There's this, this vast army to act at a moment's notice. Do you remember when uh, Peter was in the, the Garden of Gethsemane and you know, there were the crowds that were coming to, to come and arrest Jesus? And then Peter pulls out his, his sword as if he's going to defend Jesus. Jesus turns around and says, put, put the sword back in its place, Peter. He says in Matthew 26, 53, Do you not think that I, can, I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A, a Roman legion would have been between five and 6,000 soldiers. 12 legions would have been between 60 and 72,000 soldiers. And here Daniel speaks about... about Thousands upon thousands, myriads of myriads. A myriad is often translated as 10,000. 10,000 times 10,000. That's 100 million. It's like, come on, Peter, do you think if I needed backup, I'd turn to you? <laughs> I've, I've, got, I've got millions at my disposal. I, I can just call the Father now and he'll send. 
If, if I really needed protection, Peter, I, I want to be asking you for it. So there's nobody getting away from this judgment. Who do you think is casting the people into the, the fire? No one is getting away from the judgment. God literally has all the firepower he needs. You will not escape from him physically, and you will also not escape from him legally. Why? Because he has the books. The court sat and the books were opened. There will be no objection once the sentence is given because the books contain the record of all the words and actions of the accused party. This is an absolutely terrifying scene that Daniel is seeing and all the evidence is in. The court's in session. The army's prepared. The throne's on fire. The one presiding on the throne is the Ancient of Days and everything that he says is absolutely righteous. And you would think that with this terrifying scene that you could have heard a pin drop, right? This is terrifying. It's terrifying. You would think that you would, you would be able to hear a pin drop. Who would dare to utter a syllable in the presence of such majesty? Look at verse 11. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words. Are you kidding me? Which the horn was speaking. With this judgment that's approaching, you have yak, 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 yak. It's like, what? who is talking now? Who would dare open his mouth at this point? But you have this ruler who's still talking. And he's boasting great things about himself. And he's waging war with the saints. He's blaspheming God. The very one who is the Ancient of Days, who has the, the, the river of fire flowing from his throne. He's speaking about that one. That's the one that he's blaspheming. That's the one that he's mocking. Setting himself up as if he is God. And it's like, would somebody shut this horn up? Look at verse 11. It says, Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. It's like no fanfare, just put him in the fire. It's like, like no warning ahead of time. It's just, it's, it's just that simple. It's just that simple. I kept looking and the beast was slain, body destroyed, given to the fire. And the end of this final version of the beast that we find here in Daniel chapter 7, this last world empire and world ruler, it's going to be dramatic. The end is going to be dramatic. It's not going to be like the other kingdoms that kind of rolled into the next kingdom and Traces of that kingdom were found in the next kingdom, and then traces of that kingdom were found in the next kingdom. It's, it's not going to be like that with this final empire. It's going to be final. It's going to be dramatic. It's decisive. In verse 12, it says, As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. That's the contrast. You know, for, the, for these other kingdoms, they, they had a period of time where they still kind of lasted and kind of morphed into another kingdom. But for this final one, there is no continuation. It's over with. The final kingdom will be crushed, destroyed, and will not be left for another. There's nothing to pass on to another. And it's very similar to what we find in Daniel chapter 2, where it says that in those days, those kings of the God of, uh, in those days, kings, the God of heaven will set up, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. The, the kingdom to come is going to crush whatever comes before it. And there's not going to be a trace left for anything to be passed on. That's the scene in heaven. 
But let's turn quickly to the Son of Man before the throne. Look at verse 13. It says, Then I kept looking. I kept looking. You've got to keep looking. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And you need to make sure that you pay attention to the context here. What's, what's going on in the context that Daniel is speaking about? There's going to be a, a proud, boastful, arrogant ruler who's going to be slain, destroyed, given to the burning fire. That kingdom is going to be obliterated, never to rise again. And before the divine tribunal, this little horn is going to be judged and unqualified to rule. It's thrown into the river. And now the question is, who's going to rule now? That's the question. Who's going to rule now? Who who is qualified to rule over the realm of mankind? You remember the theme of Daniel? The most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And the question after this beast is destroyed is who's going to be the, the man that the most high God will set over the realm of mankind? And there's no question that we're talking about the kingdoms of the earth. That's how Daniel used the term in verse 23, the kingdom on the earth, verse 27, under the whole heaven. So it's clear that Daniel's thinking about the kingdoms of the earth. And the question is, what's going to happen? Who's worthy to receive dominion? And then verse 13 comes in. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. That's the one who's worthy. Who's worthy? He is worthy. And think about the contrast here. Think about the contrast. This is the same throne that just devoured this other world ruler in judgment. But the Son of Man is presented before the same throne, and instead of being cast into the fire, he's granted dominion. Why? Because before the throne of God, the Son of Man is perfectly righteous. He stands before the righteous throne and reflects that righteousness. He is righteous. He is righteous. Think about the contrast between the Son of Man and what came before him. The other empires of the world were described as these you know, monstrous, hideous beasts. But this one is described as the Son of Man. It's, it's the man versus the beast. This kingdom will not be a kingdom characterized by beastly activity. And think about where this kingdom comes from. This is a kingdom that's heavenly in origin. The other kingdoms in this vision rose up out of the sea like out of the abyss, turning these these beasts to rule. But this one comes on the clouds of heaven. It's, it's a heavenly kingdom that comes to the earth. And the clouds of heaven are repeatedly used in Scripture to speak of the divine presence, the presence of God. The glory of the Lord is often said to appear in a cloud. In uh, Exodus 19, verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. The glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud over the mercy seat in Leviticus 16.2. It appeared in the holy place in 1 Kings 8 and verse 10. The children of Israel, remember they were led through the wilderness by a fire at night and a cloud by the day. Both fire and cloud used in this vision in Daniel chapter 7 representing the presence of God, fire and the cloud. Psalm 104 verse 3 says he makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. So this is a a, a vision of, of heaven come down. This is a heavenly kingdom. And rather than ruling people with 
sheer force and power of domination, the peoples and nations and men of every language are willingly serving this one. Did you catch that? Look at verse 14. It says, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. That word for, uh, for serve, might serve him, it's a, a word that speaks about the service of worship. The service of worship. The translation might serve means more than just waiting upon his needs. He doesn't have any needs that need to be waited upon. And of the ten times that this word is used in the Aramaic sections of Daniel, it's always used with the idea of service or worship to a deity. It's, it's giving honor to a deity. So right here, when we're speaking about the service that men are giving to the Son of Man, it's a recognition that this Son of Man is also God. That's what this is a recognition of. They're, they're serving Him. They're willingly giving Him service. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this word in religious context for prayers and sacrifices given to God. So this isn't like the kingdoms that came before it. The, the people of, of this kingdom won't be devoured and trampled upon by their ruler. They will willingly give service and worship to him who rules. And instead of this kingdom passing away or being destroyed, Daniel says his dominion will be everlasting, one which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And who is the fulfillment of this son of man? Who is the son of man that we're talking about? Who is it that's able to stand before the judgment throne of God, blameless and righteous, without reproach? Who's worthy to take control of the the earth? As the angel in Revelation says, who's worthy to open up the book and to break its seals? And he sang a new song in Revelation 5, 9, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. The same tribes, tongues, peoples, nations that are serving him are the same tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations that he's purchased for himself. Jesus is the only one worthy of this glory. He's the righteous one who stands before the throne of his Father. He's purchased for the Father men of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And when Jesus refers to himself in the Gospels, there's no designation that he uses more frequently than the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Over 80 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. I'm the Son of Man. Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. In Matthew 24, verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, that all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Matthew 25, 31, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Flip over to to Matthew chapter uh, 26, because I want you to see this one. Matthew chapter 26. Take a look at verse uh, 59. It says, Now the, the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days, which uh, wasn't true. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, not knowing who he's standing in front of. I adjure you by the living God that you tell me, tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. 
Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is, this is who Jesus declared himself to be. I am, if you want to know who I am, and here, here they are, like, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? He says, if you want to know who I am, I'm that one. That one who's coming on the clouds of heaven. The one who's coming to judge the earth. The one who owns everything. That's me. That's who you're talking to. That's who you're in the presence of. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you've now heard the blasphemy. How, how dare you stand in our presence and tell us that you are that son of man coming on the clouds of heaven? Because he is. Because he is. And Jesus used this, 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 this term to, to refer to himself, this self-designation. Son of man, I'm the son of man. And, and all the, the, the context in the, uh, these, these, these passages speak of angels, glory, thrones, judgment, clouds of heaven. I mean, it's all there. It's, it's a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. And it's like Jesus was, was laser focused during his incarnation that, that his goal was to be presented before the Father's throne and receive the nations unto himself. It's like the, the, the agreement between the Father and the Son before he came uh, to purchase the, the world for the Father. It's like he was just laser focused on that mission, the divine mission. He would be given dominion, which is the right to rule. He would be given glory, which is the reverence that accompanies his authority. He's given a kingdom, a realm to rule over. And the Son of Man is an exalted title that speaks about the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. It's a prophetic title that, that's associated with all the other events surrounding it in Daniel. And it's also a heavenly title because he comes on the clouds of, of heaven and he's going to be served by all the tribes, tongues, nations, and languages. The Son of Man is another way to identify Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God, and deity himself. But here, here's another question that we need to consider, and it's this. Why did Jesus have to become a Son of Man in order to accomplish this. Flip over to, to Daniel chapter 8, and, and hopefully I can, I can pull some of this together for you just with this title, Son of Man. Look at Daniel chapter 8. This, this is fascinating. Daniel chapter 8. Look at verse 3. There's a Psalm of David. It says, When I consider, verse 3, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you've ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than God. Some versions say angels. The Hebrew term here is God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Here, here the psalm says that, that man was created to have dominion over the earth. Man was created to rule over the earth. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man was created to rule the earth. But here's the significant problem that comes up in Genesis chapter 3. It's the fall of the human race into sin. And after Adam, all that mankind can produce are sinners. So mankind was created to rule, but everybody who's been created are all sinners because we've all been corrupted. 
We can't rule over ourselves successfully. We can't rule over the world around us successfully. Because we're unjust, corrupt, sinful, as Jesus characterized the rule of the Gentiles. He says they lord it over, exercise great authority. And ever since the fall, it's been a mess. But God has still given the world for men to rule. So what man will finally rule with righteousness? Flip over to Hebrews chapter 2. Why did it have to be a son of man? Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 5. And you should recognize this because we just read it. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Here quoting from the Septuagint. You've crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not see yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Why did, why did Jesus have to become a son of man? Because it was given to man to rule. And there was not a man who could rule. Because we've all been corrupted by the fall. So why did Jesus have to become a man? Part of it was so that he would be the one to fulfill the mandate that was given to mankind in the first place. Man was given the, 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 the mandate to rule. He could not do it because of his sin. So God sends the son of man in order to do it. It was to fulfill the mandate that was given to man to take dominion over the earth. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of what he accomplished. Mankind failed and Jesus succeeded. Jesus is the, 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 15, 45 says, Jesus is the last Adam. Verse 47, it says that he's the second and the second is the last. There's nothing else in between. Jesus also became the son of man in order to fulfill the promises that were given to David. If you remember, uh, David was promised that your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established. But again, what's the problem with that? There's nobody that would take that throne who would be able to rule in righteousness and nobody who would live forever. So how can you be promised a kingdom that would endure forever? You have one who does live forever, who takes the throne. How is the promise fulfilled? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfills the mandate given to Adam. Jesus fulfills the promise that was given to David. And how is this promise fulfilled? In Daniel chapter 7. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. It's all fulfilled. I mean, it's all connected. It's all connected. There's a man who's going to rule. Jesus will be that man. There's a son of David who will rule forever. Jesus will be that son of David. Jesus Christ has come to fulfill all these promises, and he is the one who will rule. And finally and quickly, what about the saints on the kingdom of the earth? Flip back to to Daniel chapter 7 again. What about the saints? We know that Jesus rules, but what about the saints? Look at chapter 7. Verse 18, it says, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. Look at verse 21. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Drop down to verse 27. 
It says, Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So there's no question that the Son of Man is the, the high point of the prophecy, and Jesus is going to return to the earth that he's created to rule over it. But part of the way that he will do it is through the saints of the kingdom. And hopefully this starts to pull together some passages that you've heard before. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Jesus spoke to his disciples, Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in that regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. When does that happen? It's in this future kingdom. Revelation 20 speaks about those who are part of the first resurrection who will be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him. When does that happen? In this future kingdom. And it's not everybody who's part of the future kingdom. Particularly says it's going to be the saints. It's the holy ones. Those who are not thrown into the river of fire that runs into the lake of fire. And who is it that can pass the judgment of God? Jesus can. And then connected to him all those who are in Jesus. That we pass before the judgment of God. Because the Son of Man is also given authority to forgive sins. Flip over to to Luke chapter 5. And there is so much that we're leaving on the table. But it's fascinating. Just just take some time to do a word search, Son of Man, and and see what it's connected to. But take a look at uh, Luke chapter 5. Look at verse, start at verse 17. Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 17. It says, One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the towels with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. So seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Again, just incredible. He's, he's telling them what they're thinking inside their heads. Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk? What do you think? Is it e- easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or take up your bed and walk? It's, it's a lot easier to say, your sins are forgiven, because you can't prove it. You know, that's a lot of people are absolving people of sins, but they can't prove that they're actually doing anything. It's a lot easier to say, oh, your sins are forgiven. Sins are forgiven. But... So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. How can Jesus offer forgiveness of sins? Because of the suffering of his death. And that by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. It was because he was the Son of Man that he could offer us forgiveness of sins. Because he was perfectly righteous, he can offer us the forgiveness of sins, grant to us his righteousness. It's through faith and repentance that we become part 
of the Messiah's kingdom. And what the Messiah has not fulfilled in his first coming, we look forward to him fulfilling in the next. And there's a joy that we have over the first coming of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, delivering his people, born to reign in us forever. I mean, all these things we give God praise for, that the Son of Man has come and delivered these things to us. And now the prayer that we pray is, would you bring your gracious kingdom down and fulfill the rest of all these precious promises? that are still yet to be fulfilled. Flip over to, to uh, Psalm 98. We'll just kind of end where we, where we started. But in Psalm 98, just, just think about this from the perspective of the second coming. Think about Psalm 98 from the perspective of the second coming. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done wonderful things. His right hand and His holy arm have gained the victory for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the, sight of the nature, in the sight of the nations. Have all the nations seen this yet? In the sight of the nations, He's going to reveal this. He has remembered His loving kindness and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Everybody come and praise this God who's gained the victory. Let the rivers clap their hands. The mountains sing together for joy before the Lord for, listen to this, He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The Lord is coming back as judge. He's come the first time as Savior, amen? He's coming back again as the judge, the judge of all the earth. And this is what we sing when we say joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king, amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this text. We thank you for... Your truth, your word is truth. Father, I pray that you would sanctify us in your truth. Help us to have a greater appreciation for Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Uh, He's the one who fulfills all the promises. He's the one who fulfills the mandate that was given to Adam. He's the one who fulfills the, the, the prophecy that was given to David. He's the one who is able to present us before God because he was presented before God as holy and righteous above reproach. And because we're found in him, we can pass that judgment of God, not on any merit of our own, not because of anything that we've done. Rather, if it was up to us, we would be cast into that same river. We would flow into that same lake. But Father, because of Jesus Christ and what he's done, we are accepted and we are those who will enter into his kingdom. And for those of us who are faithful, even as the scriptures say, Lord, that we will reign with him. My Father, we look forward to heaven come down. My Father, that future kingdom that will come. Jesus Christ will return. And Father, we look forward with eager anticipation. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org 
Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.